0: Be explicit and clear about what you want to achieve and let let people help you. Like, if you don't tell anyone, they won't or they they won't know that they could. Like, people are really – it's such a good community. People are desperate to just be kind and help. So give them the opportunity to by just being open and honest and, and, and trying to help. And honestly, you'll go much faster.
1: All right, so hello everyone, and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil I'm a data scientist at IWOCA, and I will be your host. So today, our guest is Adam Sroka. Adam first studied chemistry, and then did a PhD in physics where he modeled lasers. He then had a bunch of experiences, but at some point, he moves to incremental group, where he started as a senior data scientist, but then made the transition to becoming a manager. After that, he moved to Origami, where he became the head of machine learning engineering. But a couple of months ago, he actually left to found his own startup, Hypercube Consulting, where he gives advice on data science, machine learning, um, building data teams, and data strategy. So, if you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to my YouTube channel and leave a five-star review. Let's start the conversation now. Hi, Adam. How is it going? How are you today?
0: Very good. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, up here in uh, sunny Edinburgh,
1: although it's uh, still quite cold. How are you? Yeah, all good. Also quite cold. Very dark at the moment, but everything fine. That's life.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) it's winter month winter market time isn't it
1: yeah yeah exactly that's what we like about europe the cold and dark weather (laughs) so yeah first question just want to know like how did you get into this world of data science machine learning ai how how did you get into the field
0: yeah so i kind of one of these people that always has a plan or had a plan of what i wanted to do and where i wanted to go um I'm also I'm a big believer in having a plan and then not following it almost like I. <laughs> I had a few jobs after university and kind of enjoyed myself. And then I thought, right, I want to get like a real job, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I spoke to some of my friends who were quants and they said, well, yeah, look, good money. It's challenging. It's intellectually stimulating, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, oh, yeah, i do that fine. And to get through the door, you kind of needed to have a PhD, right? So I was like, fine, I'm going to do one great. And that, that interested me and that was all well and good. And then towards the end of that, um, my doctorate, I started to play around with some machine learning stuff especially reinforcement learning so my doctorate was on designing laser defense systems um and yeah i ended up with a reinforcement learner that could design laser weapons basically which sounds a lot more sci-fi than it was um and i really liked that and i thought it was really good fun and i kind of realized that i didn't really at the time I wasn't that married to any one domain and then the sexiest job of the 21st century article was out and like all the hype was growing this is what like 2015 right all the hype was growing and data science came up as a skill and at the time again you needed to have a phd to get in so i thought brilliant nice high barrier to entry like I've, i'm just about to go into the workforce it's in line with what i want to do and and that was that and i i loved it yeah i loved just doing numbers on the computer and doing math at scale and using like big powerful machines to kind of solve problems in weird and wonderful ways and that was it and uh, the thing that really got me into it was that you could without loads of domain knowledge you could be like, a bit useful because you could as long as you had the data and, and a, a bit of help like understanding what it meant you could probably find some insights and stuff that weren't sort of well known before so yeah that that appealed to me and the rest is history i suppose
1: when was your first experience with data? Was it during your PhD that you were first that you first worked using data? So yeah, my uh,
0: a lot of my doctorate was based on a ray tracing software for lens design called Zmax. And at the time um it didn't really have any good integrations. And I spent about <laughs> three months trying to decode the binary ray database file. Um, into something in Matlab so that I could read it into Matlab. And then I thought, once I've got the data in Matlab, I can do all sorts with it, right? And, um. That was really difficult because the documentation didn't match the reality of what the database was actually encoded into. But eventually, like all good PhDs, you smash your head against the wall until the roof caves in, right? So eventually, it cracked it, and that was when I was at the time, right? I'm on a desktop computer and I was using like six, seven gigabyte data sets and thinking they were colossal, and and uh, <laughs> but it was it was good fun. And actually, so my my consulting firm's called Hypercube because the first algorithm I ever studied, uh, being a physics person that kind of self taught, was um latin hypercube sampling which really interested me and i was that's kind of why my, my company's called what it is so yeah i guess that was it really like first exposure was quite mundane just trying to crack a proprietary data set so that i could use it in matlab to do stuff with annoyingly about three months after i finished my phd zmax released a matlab connector that did it all for you so well, i was ahead of the curve a bit but not by much
1: okay so very very technical i guess you you wanted to move then to something more professional like more industrial and applied maybe and move to industry or why do so, you
0: yeah a bit of a I, I kind of say i've got a phd but i don't right <laughs> i uh i have a doctorate but it's an EngD or an engineering doctorate and the difference between that at least over here in the UK is they have to be industrial placements um they're like a year longer and you essentially do a master's and then you do a doctorate but the doctorate is research for a company that you can write up into a thesis and you get your doctorate out of I just always say PhD because no one knows what an NGD is and it's easier mm-hmm. um so I liked, I, I've always thought like academia is probably not the place for me. I've always wanted to be hands on like in a business, like doing stuff. And, uh, but there was a transition. So I worked for Thales, which is like a French government owned, um, like engineering firm, defense company. And it's a huge, like 70,000 employees or something. And, um, yeah, it wasn't for me really. I found that like these projects all had, like the small projects had like fifty people on them, and like were like fifteen years of development, and it was like seven layers of manager above you, and and that just the slowness of that just wasn't like we felt like a t- like the researchers doing what I was doing felt like tiny cogs in the very corner of the machine, and and all that so i went from uh yeah i went from talus to like a six-person startup in the other end of glasgow completely the other end of the spectrum and that wasn't all uh, sunshine and rainbows either but
1: do you prefer startups than big companies then in general I, i mean i think so i've not worked at a
0: big company for i've not worked in a big company for probably six or seven years now um I've just stuck to startups because I quite like uh, and I think for data scientists, it's quite fun because you can be useful across the board. Like you can be useful to almost any department and startups. You have to wear many hats and it's a bit chaotic and you bring a lot of good skills to a lot, like a lot of parts of the value chain. If you don't want to just do AI machine learning all day. Right. Um, so I yeah, I like that that kind of suits me in the way I work and I've yeah I've stuck in them ever since I've consulted into a lot of very big companies and seen a lot of the like reflections of the stuff that I didn't like when I was there. So I can, I can see that I'm probably better in those kind of startup environments, but it's interesting now, like I'm trying to tackle, how do you, how do you be the driver of change in those larger organizations? How do I make a big impact? And like a lot of my writings about that, like how do I, Okay, you're in that environment. Like, tell us, there's 45 people on the project. How do I still get good ideas across and drive value and do interesting stuff?
1: Yeah, interesting. So, do you do you like startups because you're not just training a model or processing the data, but you kind of have to do different things, right? You need to load the data, make sure the data is easily accessible, load it, train your models, deploy them to production, and kind of do data engineering data analysts data scientists machine learning engineer at the same time is that what you like about so startups? I, yeah i do like that
0: i think i like startups because like you often sit a few desks along from the ceo and stuff and it's like i like the chaos and how quickly things can change and happen right but um but so and i i get a lot of flack online for some of the stuff i say about like exactly what you said you're being as a data scientist you're often that person that's doing like all the bi and all the data engineering and all the machine learning engineering as well and that's not just true of startups that is in fact true of in my opinion in my experience the vast majority of organizations like up to a large a reasonably large scale so i've got a customer at the moment who's going to do i think 1.4 billion in revenue this year and they had one data scientist that had to do it all right so in that environment, like, that's why I always say things like, in that environment, you could hire a maths genius, like, that wants to know stats inside out and wants to do machining all day, but they're not going to have the impact because, if, like, if they need to put stuff into production, and I got chewed up about this the other day about you don't have to put everything in production, but they might land, and I've seen this time and time again, and there's nothing, like, there's, there's no support, there's no one to get them data there's no infrastructure like and then just really really struggle and i've seen that over and over and over again and i, I don't think that's limited to startups i think actually that's probably a more common story but happy to be proven wrong
1: hmm. so for a company which wants to start hiring data scientists or which are hiring their first data scientists like you mentioned there could be nothing where should the data scientists start? Like, what should they do first to make well generate value, basically? So, uh,
0: and yeah, again, the caveat of all this with like I'm almost always talking about contexts where you need to put models into a production environment that run all the mm-hmm. time. Like that, I've t- told that like pharmaceuticals, right? Which I've never worked in. That actually, you can do loads and loads of one-off analyses, and that works. Well, I've never worked there, so. Take all this with a pinch of salt, but in the environments where it's like putting models like time series forecasting, you want to keep putting them into production. I'd say, right, if, if you're a data scientist, and it's one of the things that I wrote as a a piece recently about, like the top questions you can ask. So it's hard to gauge that what level of maturity is a is a is an organisation at, and you'd often not get the truth either, especially if you're a good candidate and the company wants to sell to you, which I think people forget that that happens. Like people get so caught up about getting the job. They don't realize that actually sometimes the hiring person is also caught up in trying to hire the person. And so sort of like half truths and future truths come out, right? So I think one of the best questions to ask, to gauge that is just simply how many models are in production now, right? And that you'll get a few answers to that, like none tells you okay they've not they've not got over that hurdle of deploying their first model a few i don't really know that can be a bit of a red flag or oh there are lots and lots but if they don't give you like a good number you can drill into the question a bit if someone tells you oh we've got such as this many in this department and that and i don't know the numbers of the rest, you're probably quite confident that they're they're over that hump and things like that and and there's nothing wrong with it, right? If you're like, I liked that. I liked, I was always the guy in the team like that didn't mind doing all the data engineering and all the kind of, I think like, that's why I ended up being ahead of MLE, right? I quite liked just doing the plumbing bits as well. Um, but just know what you're getting in for, I think. If you land and there's nothing there, then I would petition for, if you're not re- ready to do it, I would petition whoever's hired you for the right support or getting like a bit of help bringing the data sources at least into a clean spot and then if you're if you're an organization that's not sure what to do and you you're making your first data hire don't start with a data scientist like i think you are probably always better with either like an analyst that wants to do a bit of everything or a data engineer that wants to build you good foundations and like wants to, you can get usually a lot of value from automated reporting of stuff like long before machine learning, right? And again, there's like loads of use cases where that's not true, but I think it's easier to start with a good data engineer.
1: Yeah, good point. I kind of agree with you. I think many companies, they think, well, maybe they don't even know what they want or who they should hire. So they think, well, data scientist is a buzzword. I need a data scientist. Let's find one. And then they hire one and they realize that, oh, actually, that's maybe not what I needed.
0: Yeah. So I I got chewed up about this recently um, because I post some stuff that's like a bit provocative, right? Um, To try and sort of feed the engagement gods. But uh, so I talked about how for a lot of the places I've hired for and teams I've built, especially if you're like the early data scientist through the door, I'm more in, I'm actually like, you'll get a lot of applications. There's no, there's no shortage of people that want to be data scientists, right? That's a myth. So it's easy to find lots of people at a high standard, I think, as long as you're paying like at or above average rates and you're not working for like a scumbag industry, you'll find people that want to work with you, right? So then you can screen for whatever you like. And I think that actually having some of that like skills in SQL, skills in a little bit of like performance profiling, testing, like being able to do some of the more engineering stuff separates out the people that are probably going to succeed being that one man band or one person band, sorry, like in in a setting where they're not going to have the right support. Um yeah. I, uh, whereas it's not really anyone's fault. And like, so, I, and then I, I put this post up talking about that. And a lot of people were saying, well, hire, why don't you hire two people for the two roles? Then and it's like, well, some of these companies don't have budget for two people. They've got budget for one person. I know it looks like a unicorn, but that like they are, they're taking their first step on the journey and they need to prove it's valuable before they can spend like 400,000 pounds a year on a team of like four people or whatever. Um, yeah it's it's a hard it's hard right
1: yeah very difficult especially if you're yeah just starting and especially if the company well if it's a tech company probably the founders are well they have a cto or they're they have some knowledge and they know what they need to build their company but if it's something completely unrelated like energy or agriculture or something like that it could be quite challenging
0: the example I always use, right, is one of my old customers from a previous life, um, was a bakery. I've talked about this loads recently. Mm-hmm. And so they did 30 million a year in revenue selling bread. Oh. That was it. So they're just an old, like family run bakery made really successful. They wanted to start doing data science and they had, they had budget for one hire. You can't tell you could, like, they're not a tech company. They never will be. There is value to be had. Because some predictive stuff might make a big difference to them. But getting, telling them, right, oh, you need, a, you need to get a data engineer and a machine engineer and a data scientist and a software engineer before you can start. Well, they just, they just won't, they won't bother. Um, and there's other routes to that. Obviously, you go down some of the managed service routes and things like that or use consultancies, but I, I just think how, like that is a, a situation where you've, you've got to kind of, start with a pragmatic maybe not best of the best in everything but someone that is a bit of a jack of all trades that can at least get them off the ground and prove or or even just tell them what they need like sometimes it takes someone being there six months to to figure that out
1: so there so there is value in today's society to be some kind of Multi skilled person that knows a bit of software engineering, a bit of data engineering, a bit of data science. You don't need to be like an expert in, uh, I don't know, stats or machine training, machine learning models. You can be have a bit of knowledge from data engineering, ML, uh, stats, SQL, things like that, and be quite valuable as well.
0: I think so. So I think um, probably the most like sought after the best jobs, right? You will need to be like pure specialist, like really highly specialized, but you'll be competing against other really highly specialized people, right? So if you like don't think you can get to be the very best in the field at this, like top 1%, like you're, you're going to struggle to land the roles that you want because you're also limiting the kinds of organizations that can support you, like that like super genius math wizard, that knows a little bit of Python and that's it, like will not survive at the bakery, right? Because they mm-hmm. they can't support them. And maybe they don't want to work there, that's fine, but they, they'll probably do better at, at fang-like companies, right? Um, so it depends on where you are and what you want and like what you find fun and what's interesting. I'd say for early career people, I would probably say like try and learn a bit of it all, because at least you'll you'll learn the stuff you don't like, and and also like I, I strongly believe that knowing bits of software engineering, like I'm not a software engineer at all, right? But knowing bits of it and and having tried to learn big chunks of it makes me better in teams with software engineers because I kind of I understand what they're on about and why they care about like dependency injection and things like that, which like usually just goes over the heads of lots of data people and why like CI/CD and testing and all this is important because it it makes that team gel a bit better even if i'm never the one doing it i understand it right so i think early career is always worthwhile but if you want to get far then specialism and industry context i think probably uh, uh, what you should then start optimizing for so it's that whole thing about the t-shaped engineer right
1: yeah so let's let's summarize what we discussed because i went on a tangent but i want to come back to your career basically you well, did this PhD, you went to industry, you worked, um, well, first you worked in a big company, then you moved to a startup. And at some point you actually moved to incremental group where you start as a senior data scientist, but then you transition to becoming a manager. So first thing for those who aren't familiar with incremental group, what's incremental group doing? and yeah what are they doing and how do they use data and ai basically
0: yeah so uh incremental group one of the fastest growing it was a start up one of the fastest growing consultancies in the uk um up until february this year so founded in 2015 by three guys who were um, former lockheed Martin, and they built a essentially a consultancy delivering Microsoft Dynamics and like Azure Services, right? Um grew to I, can't, I don't know, I think it was about 700 people by February this year. They sold in February, just gone, for 185 million. So, a bit of a wild ride, and it was great fun being there. It was, like, one of the most dynamic and, like, high-intensity places I've been, but it was really, really good. Some super-talented folks, and, yeah, like, deserved all the lot they got, I thought, like, and all the success they got. Um So... It was interesting. So I joined when their their main service offering was Dynamics, right? Um, building ERP and CRM systems for, like, yeah, organizations across the UK. Um, and for people that aren't familiar with those, they're much like Salesforce and uh, what's the other one? Uh, there's plenty of them, right? Uh, where you, you buy a platform. A product platform and it needs lots of like integration and customization to fit your business right so that's what they did and then i joined as data scientist number one and uh by the end of my first nine months there there were three of us as data scientists there and um Delivering projects for some interesting customers, and it was like customers that had had maybe another thing off of us, like a Dynamics thing off of us, and then we were doing some interesting data stuff for them as follow-ups, right? And then they restructured the business because they'd grown really quickly um, after about nine months, and they wanted to um, go from one big like group of sort of consultants to five business units, and that's when I kind of made the transition, which was yeah mixed fun i'd say
1: so so can you go through through this transition um yeah how how did it happen and why was it mixed fun as you as you said
0: yeah so uh, yeah like i was very ambitious always and i said one of these people was kind of always had a plan and and I, i tell people this all the time i think like if anyone ever asks you like what you want to do in five years or whatever like Tell them you want their job or tell you want, you want their boss's job or something like that. Because like people like ambitious people. And if you are, if you want to like progress, actually a lot of people want to help you out. Like people that are further on than you want to line up the opportunities for, for, for you to, to get what you want going into roles and like not, and just being a bit like humble and meek and British about it. Right. You, you just going, Oh, I don't mind. Like you're not giving them the information to help make you successful and whatever right so i was ambitious and i kind of they knew i wanted to progress and run my own consultancy one day so when they split to five business units they wanted to start a data and ai business unit and grow that as its own practice separate from the, the dynamic stuff um and i'd worked really hard for them and like it'd gone really well um and so they offered it to me and yeah, that was interesting. So I, I literally overnight went from individual contributor leading teams to um, actually managing people and trying to grow the team. And I did some technical stuff still, but I spent a hell of a lot of my time doing like everything from like recruitment, um, performance management, like HR staff, finances, uh, sales, marketing, like all this stuff that you need to do to run a business. And it's quite common pattern, you get business unit directors, that was my job title. Um, and that is like, it was described to me as like, you're like a mini CEO within the company. So you run your business unit, you're in charge of everything, you're responsible for everything, but you get support from the main company. Yeah, that was really enlightening. And then, look, it was mixed fun because I was really bad at it at first, right? And I was a bad manager at first. I had like personal issues around my own attitude and the way, like, I I was and I behaved, uh, just inexperience and things like that, and alienated a few people as that team. grew that team grew from three to uh, quite a few in the end. Um And yeah, had really difficult times with some of it because I. Again, yeah, an experience and whatever. But over time, I got better at it. I got better and better as time went on. Eventually, I got given a second team that was much bigger um, to try and help them. And yeah, it was interesting. An interesting kind of trial by fire. Um, but I've got the scars to show for it. And yeah, there's stuff. I've still got big regrets off the back of it. But I've learned a hell of a lot, a of a lot from from doing it. And it's it's funny because there's like... There's plenty of leadership books out there, and there are some management books as well. There's not loads on, like, the transition, like, the actual, the feeling. So I think if I ever get the time, that will be my memoirs, I'll write, like, the how it felt and, like, why it was so difficult to do. And I still find, like, I'm obsessed with it now, like, learning about management and leadership and stuff, because I think it's one of those things that, like, not many people talk about being good at it's kind of like uh, you need to have managers right and that's that but people don't often talk about well how do you be a good manager and how do you what does management feel like in data and stuff like that so that's what like all my my blogs like about all that stuff my and yeah it, I'm not sure if it's better than being an IC. I don't know. Like, I uh, it, I do miss, like, spending all of my time, like, stuck into doing data science problems and stuff. But I've learned a load of different stuff. Um And my kind of gut feel was always that if you could become the best manager, right, like, the absolute best leader and everyone wanted to work for you, then... And if I can take a team of great people and make them work together well, which is really hard, even if they're all excellent, um, then actually as a group, we'll just outperform anything we can kind of do on our own.
1: So that's kind of the value I add now, I hope. So what kind of mistakes, mistakes did you make when you started? And also follow up on this, how did you realize that you weren't a good manager, that you were making mistakes and how did you improve on this?
0: yeah so i did a few things like i was so i i'm a workaholic right i like i was comfortably at the time i was working 90 hour a week 90 hour weeks quite a bit like that's just i loved my job i loved what i was doing consultancy's hard startups are hard right so like you add all that together and you get this quite intense environment um and so I kind of had that level of expectation for the people that work with me. And I hadn't spotted that like I'd progress quickly to director. And I hadn't thought that well, that's because I like I was maybe exceptional in the, the amount I was giving to the company. So I just kind of expected other people to be at that level. And then having not really managed people before, like expectation setting was really difficult. Like, and I actually think like a lot of problems in the workplace from internally working with customers like everything can almost boil down to a lack of uh, understanding of the expectations by both sides like really explicitly now like i think really explicitly like almost writing little mini contracts on this is exactly what you said and what i meant and this is what we'll do like that solves so many problems because a lot goes unsaid in the environment like the work environment stuff like that so yeah probably a mismatch of expectations of, and then when when stuff was easy, it was great. And I did a lot of like, I gave away a lot of freedom to try and like make people like me because like, I was like, I don't know, I want people to like me. So I gave away a lot of freedoms. And then when stuff wasn't so good, like when we came into like difficult patches, sales weren't in or projects were overrunning, I had no like levers and no control because I'd alienated people by not being great and being a bit too harsh perhaps but at the same time like i'd given them so much freedom that there was no real precedent and i didn't really have any controls over what was there um yeah expectations were all over the shop and like my communication style wasn't perfect so because i worked all hours like and I'm, I'm a big believer in asynchronous communication, so I love like just writing messages and emails and sending them out. Da, da, da. Found out much, much later on that I had a reputation for management by email, and I didn't see, didn't just do enough FaceTime with people, which is like you just don't until someone tells you that, you're like, mm-hmm. it's hard to know. Um, and I think a lot of it comes down to like trust, like you can kind of take this back to nowadays. I think I really spend so much time trying to build. And we'll talk about friendships in a minute, but trying to build, like, strong personal relationships and understandings of people and, like, having face-to-face time and doing stuff with them for them so that when it's more difficult, like, they understand that it's a human that's asking them, mm-hmm. like, performance is great. Can we do something about it? How can we do it? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like you're together with them in it as opposed to like uh, just a manager, like a non-human manager that's just pushy and and not great and he's never there. And then the other thing is like that whole, I've got this thing about friendships now as well. Like I think I was trying to treat everyone like a friend first and um, in hindsight that, I don't think that's right in a professional environment. I think you can be friends with your team and you can be friends with people and that's great if you can. But you are you must first and foremost like you are colleagues and you work together and there's a professional like relationship that must be upheld at all times and stuff like that and blurring that line too much can can cause issues if you're not like you've not already built all that trust up, right? I mean, it cost me friendships, right? All this. So it it was painful for Mm me.
1: How did you manage to improve then and learn from those mistakes to become a good, better manager? Yeah.
0: um, Great difficulty, I guess. Um, Sort of lots of self-reflection, being told all this stuff, like by observers. Um, I've got a really good mentor. So the CEO of that business like mentors me um, and he's, like very frank and blunt and he would like to tell me that i'm I'm rubbish at this and rubbish at that and gives me things to work on therapy like i've i've kind of to help look at parts of me that that maybe don't fit what i do like i yeah voraciously read as much as i can on leadership and management these days like i probably read yeah probably a, a book a week like through audible reading and i'd say 90 to 95% of everything I read is like something about communication or management or leadership because I'm looking for every kind of lever, every trick I can find to apply to like my world and what I'm doing and then try and pass on the stuff that I think has worked for me and build little systems that might make it easier. Um yeah, I'm a big like self-reflect now a lot. Um, and then just changing what I did. So I, there was other managers in that company that were really good and had really good reputations. So just copy them. Like that's one of the best ways to get good at anything is just copy people that are good at it already. Just go like, what exactly are you doing? And just, can I do exactly that? Try and be a lot less emotional as well. Like that was a big thing for me. Like I was hot headed and emotional. And when, when stuff was great, I was really happy. And when stuff wasn't great, I was really grumpy. And you just, have to get rid of all that i think it's hard like it's a hard thing to do it's almost like an act but you have to actually be it as well
1: yeah that's that's something i feel a lot like it's very difficult to be emotional and when you do some good work you would be very happy but as soon as you make a mistake or you do something that's less good uh, you would just be very stressed and it can influence downstream work if you need to work on something else later You won't be in a chilled, relaxed mindset and um, one mistake can lead to other mistakes as well. So something important, but I guess easier said than done is to try to forget the emotion and just Mm -hmm. focus, well, have a plan and tackle tasks one by one with a clear plan without any emotions.
0: So uh, one of the other directors
1: in that company
0: that I ended up working really closely with uh, was a like a master of that and he was like a like a zen machine he and he said to me once he was like you you can never react and someone had told him i can't remember exactly how i said it but he basically said something along the lines of just never react to anything when you get like a new win say you win a new customer and it's like the biggest win you've ever done and it's amazing acknowledge it and you can be a bit positive and be like right that is good great But don't get like joyous and emotional about it. Just like, just let that wash over you and let other people be happy. And then at the same time, when like a a member of your team like harpoons a whole project or upsets a customer or whatever, again, acknowledge it. Say, right, I'm disappointed. We need to fix this. But just be, try and be flat. And I was like, that's a bit weird. No, I don't know. But it really worked. Like he was loved by everyone and he was really good at his job. So, try to be a bit more like that and I find that hard right and that's why like I've done a lot of work to try and embody that I guess
1: so let's move on from incremental group to origami you well you became actually the head of machine learning engineering at origami after that yeah what's origami and what was your role there as the head of ml engineering
0: yeah so um I absolutely love my job at Incremental. Like it was like my dream role. Everything was right. And I got tempted away by origami um, because <laughs> they just had a really cool mission. Um, they are building an energy tech startup, right? To try and fix the challenge of like the data problem in the energy space in the UK and The CEO, Peter Bounce, is a great guy. He um, kind of spotted that as, like, years ago, like, long before it was actually an issue, that um, as more renewables and stuff get into the system, the system gets more volatile, and therefore there's a bigger need for data processing and prediction and stuff like that, and it's just trying to get in front of that and make that easy for companies and stuff. So I joined them because they'd just delivered a pilot To a huge energy company in Austria, I think it was. um, At the. uh had been a success, like, so they'd done like a small bit of prediction work that was really successful. And that company turned around and went, right, we now need to scroll to scale this from like one site to 12,000. And it was like, oh, right. Okay. This isn't just Jupyter notebooks and like running stuff on a, an airflow schedule anymore. This is like, we need to build something proper. And it's kind of, I'd been studying that side of things because MLops was still, that was like two years ago. That was still it's still fairly new outside of like big tech organizations. It was like kind of, a, and it still is a bit of an emerging field, right? So I'd done bits of it and had explored ways of doing it. And so that was that. Yeah. Got brought in to do that and ended up being, um did a lot of the kind of head of data stuff. It was like all things data kind of came to me because I, I'd, yeah, I'd had experience, had a really good team of data scientists and data engineers there and yeah, built some cool stuff.
1: What's the problem of data and in the energy sector? You mentioned they wanted nah. to fix this problem. God, there's
0: loads. Uh, so, and that's <laughs> so I, my consultancy now is focused on the energy sector because it's so interesting and it's so, the opportunity is massive. And actually, like, you can make some real impact to like the green initiative stuff and like carbon and things. So, I, I really believe in it as a space, but also the technical challenge is like really interesting. So, you've got, and I didn't know any of this before I worked at Origami, but in the UK at least, but most places, right, energy gets traded in 30-minute windows throughout the day. So it's 48 windows a day, and they trade energy. And then the, the system provider, like National Grid in our case, their job is to make sure that at all times supply and demand are balanced, right, otherwise you get problems. Um, so... Back in the day, and this was kind of the genus for, for origami, back in the day when you just had loads of gas power stations, well, it was quite easy to predict how much you were going to produce because it's just a function of how much gas you put in, right? So you could do your predictions quite easily and they could be in Excel and nice and long-winded and you could trade like weeks in advance and that. And that was kind of how it was done. But. Now that you've got loads of, like, wind and solar on the system, you, you can't make those predictions that far in advance anymore. Like, if you are you don't know what your wind farm is going to produce, right? So you've got a financial domain to the data, like market data that ticks, and that is becoming more and more real-time. And actually, there's lots of different markets you can sell into and services that you can sell your energy into that pay you differing amounts depending on what you do so like there's a whole thing at the moment that's like one of the more profitable ways to make money and the reason batteries like huge batteries are becoming really popular um in the energy sector is frequency response services so you get paid you can get paid to have a battery that isn't charged sat on the grid and Mm -hmm. it enters a frequency response service and if too much power is generated in a window your battery can suck that up to keep everything balanced and then actually, in the next window, you could enter an, the opposite service that if not enough is produced, you can dump it. So you just get paid to charge and paid to discharge. But there's like one model, right? So there's all these different – and like, is that more profitable than just selling that energy wholesale, so on and so forth? So you've got a financial element to it. You've got the physical element to it of like – this is actual physical mit- like kit out in a field like generating electricity. You've got like predictive maintenance. You've got – um yeah, temperature, like all these different factors going on. You've got weather to, to think about, and actually, there's like a contractual element as well. There's like another domain which is like, have I signed contracts called P- power purchase agreements (PPAs) that determine what price I get for my energy into what what mm-hmm. markets and whatever? Like, have I actually really sold half this portfolio to another company that that, that are going to sell it on and so on and so forth? So. That is another thing about the physical data tends to be like super high frequency, not super high frequency, but like that'd be like Mm -hmm. 20 Hertz, right? Because it's just like IOT data coming in from loads of different sources. And then the market data was like half hourly from one source. And you're trying to like build models using all of it and mix it all together. So it's just a big mess of data basically that you've got to try and make sense
1: of. Yeah. I, I'm familiar with some of this because actually my master thesis back when I was at uni was on predicting the energy of solar panels across the UK. Um, so a slight part of this because I just had, yeah, energy data from different solar, well, solar stations in the UK and, um, just had to also use satellite images and things like that and the cloud to try to predict energy. And yeah, it's actually. Quite challenging. Um, predicting solar power isn't easy because yeah, you need to basically, well, if you've got a cloud that comes just on top of your solar panels, you know, that's yeah, basically no energy anymore, so or yeah. very little. So you kind of need to predict that, but this means you need to predict weather, um, so it which becomes is really hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, exactly. So so what was origami? Was it more some kind of consultancy, or um, were they? trying to solve different challenges within the energy sector?
0: No, so uh, Origami is a SaaS platform. Um, and the idea is you they have a mix of... So they have like IoT device type things like called energy routers that they will go out and install on your batteries and your kit in the field. And that collects the data from the device and sends it to Origami's cloud. But it also allows them to send instructions to the device, which means... And you have to go through all these licenses and things... With the grid to prove that you're going to play by the rules of all the services you get into, right? So that they'll, they'll do all that for you. So like you can just buy a great big battery, stick it in a field and turn origami on and it will do most of the control for you. Um, but they're, they're essentially building a SaaS platform that just gets rid of the common stuff. Like everyone needs to get their data into uh, a format and make decisions on it and. Look at the performance of what they've done and like look at their financial performance of their trades and bid into markets, get access to the market data. That's like common. So why should every energy company do it? And the interesting thing about there's other companies that do this as well, but origami have taken a position of not doing any trading. So they won't, they are, they don't bid. A lot of the other providers of these kinds of services also have like a trading house as well. Um So Origami's position is they're just a tech layer, which means they're never going to compete with their customers, right? So their customers are energy companies and trading firms and like people that just own batteries and stuff. Um And then it's, yes, yeah, a SaaS platform. So it's like iterating that platform and building more and more features that make it more useful for people.
1: So essentially, building a tool that enables other energy company to well get more data, play around with their data, and make better trades as well. Mm-hmm. In the end. Yeah. Cool. And then, so why did you leave from there to start your company? Then,
0: yeah, I um, always wanted to. Like I've ever since day one at Incremental, I wanted to start something, um, and I did strongly believe. At the time, the reason I went into a consultancy job, because I, I kind of thought that that was a really good model for data science, especially in these smaller companies like that aren't mature. Because like, I'd had a couple of jobs where I'd landed, there was maybe like six months' worth of a project to do, delivered it, and then there was nothing left. And it was like, right, now that's what we wanted to do. So you end up doing like BI work or database work, which is fun, but... You, you're like a, an expensive, not very good DBA, right? That's get, which isn't really what you signed up for. So, And I'd, I'd seen that and I'd heard friends that got into the industry as well and I have the same experience um, over and over and over again. And I thought, well, maybe consultancy is better actually come in, do the project and then just walk away, let the customer deal with it and enjoy and like figure out how it fits their model. And then maybe either come back or build a team around what you delivered. Um, so I always knew I wanted to do it. Um, yeah, it left Origami to, cause the time was right. Really it just kind of things had lined up. I delivered some of the stuff I wanted to do and it, it was a nice natural break. Um, to come and do it. And I'd learned so much about the energy industry. I was kind of fascinated. Like, all right, I want to do
1: this for. Yeah, lots of companies across across the sector, and here we are. So, so is that right to say that you're doing energy consultancy and you're providing services in well focused on data science, data strategy, and building data teams? Am I missing something else?
0: No, nah, spot on. Yeah, like. Uh... My absolute bullseye customer is, yeah, someone trading energy in the UK markets that, um, wants to do, wants to have a look at their data platform or their architecture, their strategy or their data science or whatever. And I can either. Advising or bring in my consultants and we can do the project with you or for you or whatever. Um, but like we're very young. So as much as they're the target customer, like I'll take what I get. And um, yeah, if someone comes along from like a manufacturing thing in the States and I'm not going to turn them down. Right. So, uh, but yeah, dream customers are in and around the energy space uh, trying to do stuff there really.
1: Can you zoom maybe into one example of one the way data science can help one particular business like just a particular example um, of some client or even a project that you've got in mind yeah so okay
0: one customer are um like they own power stations right and they trade power but they're like traditional traders and they do so they do some data analysis but it's more like fundamental analysis it's like long term curves of like what's going to happen in the market how a price is going to change over the winter that kind of stuff and then they're on the desk like loads of screens around them 24 hours a day making trades selling right um and that is data informed but there uh, there's a lot of opportunity there to go right well why don't we build a killer prediction model for this market and and actually like they're doing things around uh, not with me but they're doing things around how like they can install loads of iot type sensor systems into the actual plants to look at like predictive maintenance and all that stuff again but so yeah like, like everyone wants better forecasting crystal balls so they know what the price is going to be before everyone else so they get an edge when they trade and stuff like that but there's also just like general Data architecture and strategy stuff, like there's big wins to be had where these, like most companies, they grow organically over like 20 years. They end up with like five or six different software platforms that support the different functions. And then so there's one function produces loads of data and simple things like there's too much data for them to stick it on the network. It's like 200 gig a day they produce, right? So it just gets binned because... Mm they're not data people, they've just, they use it, and they've done the analysis, and they send the results off. But another function could really make use of that, actually, if they could just look at it and say, like, okay, well, can we build the architecture and the kind of landing zones where that all gets tidied up and archived off and improve the auditability and stuff like that, or all that kind of stuff? Can we build you better Power BI reports? Can we build you, like, better alerts and things like that that enable you to just derive more value from the data that you're already generating and, and use it and collecting?
1: So, yeah, this looks like, a okay, well, a great use case of like where you can apply data science. Another thing that you're doing is like data strategy. How is that? How do you differ data strategy from data science? What would be a data strategy?
0: So for me, example? yeah, they, like uh, definitions are hard, right? So I always think data science is trying to. Find value in data that you've got, like trying trying to derive value and understanding from the data you have, right? Whereas a data strategy is like what your organization as a whole is going to do with the data, it or like and how you're going to treat data and how you're going to manage it. And it's strategy a really fluffy word that gets thrown about. And if you've never worked in like strategy consulting, like I didn't really know what it meant. It was just a, a thing that consultants said, right? But essentially like your, your business should have a business strategy and that is like okay what are we going to do in the next five years and why essentially and then under the business strategy i always think there should be like a technology strategy which is like okay how are the how's the data and the apps that we use going to support that and then i th- i think that in a lot of cases the data strategy sits under the tech strategy and and so it was put to me a really good way. And I wrote a post on this, like the framework I've used to do it quickly, because like this can be as big or as small as you want it to be. And a lot of people get like, try and do these huge frameworks. Whereas I like a bias for action. Let's get going and then iterate it. But I always think a strategy should answer four questions, essentially. Where are we now? Like what's the current state of play? Like all of our systems, all of our challenges, blah, 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 blah. Where are we Where do we want to go? Like, what do we want to do? What things do we want to achieve with our data? Okay, like, how are we going to get there? What's the plan to get from point A to point B? Like, all the little initiatives and projects that we have to do to to bridge that gap. And then where do we start so like of, of all those initiatives, which ones naturally line up and which ones can we do with our current skills? Which ones can we, do we need to hire in for? And, and then I think you can, so I like those four questions. And then I talk about like, you've got the elements that you have to consider and the enablers. So or concerns and enablers. So like your concerns are like, you need to be concerned about governance. You need to be concerned about the tools. You need to be concerned about the skills and then your enablers are like, right, the, the people and the technologies that you're going to use to answer those concerns, right? And that that's roughly a 30-second kind of rundown of how I do mm-hmm. data strategy. Obviously, it goes a bit deeper than that.
1: No, that was super clear because, yeah, it's not a topic that I'm super, super familiar with. So that was super clear and actually quite...
0: Yeah, I think half the game actually is putting together something that... I say this a lot but like you want especially if you're a consultant you want people to feel like you're doing it with them and not to them like they're on board so i think half the game is like producing something that all the relevant stakeholders in the company have had a look at and gone yeah we're doing that because once you get people lined up stuff starts to really go the I think when you've got like pockets of development going on and like one, like the finance team want to do one thing with their data and the HR team want to do something completely unrelated. And there's only like three developers, like it gets difficult. But if you, if everyone had a chance to input and talk about the prioritization and get lined up and you understand why stuff and actually like you're not doing pet projects, you're doing stuff because you've lined it up with the business strategy. So it all sort of feeds up the pyramid, then it arms people with like something to, to go into big meetings and say, well, no, we, we're not going to do that because we all said we were going to do this instead. And here's why I think we do need the budget
1: for this and we should cut that. And that's where it helps, I think. So is planning and communication key to drive a good data strategy?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think, like again... I see them as living documents. Like, actually, I think it should be someone in the organization's job, like, on their yearly appraisal to, like, keep up to date the data strategy and keep keep iterating it and keep – because everything changes all the time, right? Like, you could write a really good data strategy and then COVID happens and you're going to have to change your data strategy, right, because your, your business is probably going to completely change overnight, right? So that I just think it should be someone's job to keep that ticking over. Um, but it's hard because, like, m- most people don't even know what it is, let alone how to do one that's kind of worthwhile. Um, uh, and then you get mixed up in, like, okay, you look at maybe the big consultancies and how they do it. Maybe they're out of your budget. Are you stuck? Um, but yeah, I think like communication is kind of the key to to all of it, actually. In
1: 2022, how important is this to have a data strategy if you're a company? Um,
0: I think probably not what people expect, but I think you can be successful without one, right? But you're, especially as you as you grow, I think you're more likely to be successful with one, right? So like, by I've seen lots of very successful companies that have never thought about this stuff at all and it just works, yeah. But at the same time, getting groups of people to agree is really difficult and humans haven't cracked that one yet. Um, so the strategy, I almost see it as like a framework to kind of get some agreement and try and drive stuff. So I think it becomes important when you've either plateaued and you're like stuff's not really going any further or there's lots of infighting or just struggles and difficulties and stuff.
1: So beyond data strategy, the third thing in your business is also building data teams. I'm just wondering like, what do you need to build a strong data team? I guess it will depend on the business, but um, roughly what's your view on that and what do you need to have a team is it just one person or i guess a team is well you can be a team of one person yeah i think you you can um
0: i think the best teams have the tools and the skills that they need to to solve problems like autonomously so they're not like dependent on lots of other people all the time to do stuff for them um and then have the understanding of like what they need to do and why they need to do it um i think those two things often get missed and like you can have really capable teams that know what to do and then don't have the permissions or the skills or the tools or you have really capable people that don't have a deep understanding of like the why like why has such and such a person from finance asked me to do this because he's already got this report somewhere else and he's trying to figure that out um what those skills are, and that understanding is is very very context specific so that's kind of it there's that's hard i think you you always need there's like four kind of i talk about four um like personality types i guess or like roles that you have to play, and one person can do them all, but you need a communicator someone that's happy to like listen to people and communicate sort of translate between the techies and Business people, you need a builder, someone that likes to build things and get all the nuts and bolts tight and like obsess over the kind of actually doing bit. You need an explorer, someone that's happy to like get stuck in the problem and get a bit lost in the weeds and like bring the innovation type stuff or connect the dots. And then you need like what I call the conductor, it's a terrible name, but I've kind of run out of good names for these, but uh, <laughs> someone that's that's happy to like. Track what's in flight, what you promised you were going to do, like when you said you were going to do it, why and all that. Like do the project management stuff, like the stakeholder mm-hmm. management and things. And I think one person can do all of those, but um, I try and make sure that at least those four are covered within a team and if you find that there's a weakness actually bringing in external stakeholders and just putting them in the team as well on a part-time basis can be all it takes like the best communicator translator from me to finance is a person from finance right that sits in the team with me and helps me because do you know what i mean they're already playing for the other side so
1: if you had to choose one skill what what would it be you mentioned no. for.
0: Of those four, oh, communication always, always, always. I think if you're a really, really good communicator and you're really good at listening to people, you, you can you can do wonders. That's like I, I convinced that most business problems end up being communication problems.
1: Well, the unexpected. I wouldn't expect this one skill for data scientists. That's you think that's more important than the technical aspect or the data aspect. So.
0: Definitely, because if I'm really good. I can convince the person with the technical know- how to do the work for me, right, or I can convince my boss to go out and hire the right people to do that stuff the There's a lot of talent that gets like burnt out or frustrated by not having the right support, and the right stuff put in place, and a good communicator will understand that or like listen to the frustrations and listen to the needs and make the case to go and get it and bring people on the journey with them, I think.
1: Well, very good point. I just want to ask two questions based on your career before we finish the episodes. The first one is: When did you do your PhD? How long ago was this?
0: Uh, Twenty twelve to sixteen in Strathclyde. I graduated from um, at Thales in yeah, Glasgow. Gavin.
1: So, if you could tell something to your yourself ten years ago, one advice or one, I don't know recommendation, what would you tell yourself?
0: Genuinely, well, I'd I'd definitely tell myself to start writing up earlier than I did. Um, But in all seriousness, start writing online earlier. Like genuinely think one of the biggest, and this ties back into the communication thing, right? I think one of the best skills I've covered like kind of developed over the last couple of years is my writing online, and just putting my thoughts out there. I've learned a lot from sharing stuff that i thought i was teaching like giving my opinion and people challenge it and like have a go at me and all that i learn a lot from that and i've become a lot better for it and i've made great connections with great people so i, I think start writing as early as possible you do not have to be the expert you can write about what you are learning as you are learning it and people will find it valuable
1: what do you mean about writing would it be blog posts? would it be writing on social media any kind of writing
0: anything get in the habit once a week i like i do a long form piece once a week um and i write twice a day on linkedin now and i'm on twitter like um because i it's been so impactful for my development that i just do loads of it um and i'm practicing and honing like stories and arguments over and over and over again so that when they come up in like a real situation they just fly off the tongue and, and i know that that i can say that in a way that people understand because i've done it before and it's resonated before it's it's such a useful thing to do and the, the downside so little you it's not a waste of time honestly
1: what, what does this bring you like so many positive things what kind of oh wow things? right
0: um money like actual cash money um if you want to just get paid really quickly start writing on medium um if you are if you get half decent and can get into like a big publication then you can you can make like hundreds of dollars a month from writing just writing once a week um that's a good benefit i think the the biggest benefit for me is that learning piece and making like meeting people like there are world experts that i talk to on linkedin where i've kind of write the most that I'd never ever meet and like, like there was a, I had a customer recently had a weird data problem and I was like, "Mm, I'm going to suggest a thing that I wasn't convinced about. So I just called up a guy, Joe Reese, who's just written the book fundamentals of data engineering. I just called him up and he was like, yeah, hi, how to meet you because we talk a lot. He gave me loads of free advice. I took that back to the customer. They were chuffed to bits. I would not have been able to do that if I didn't write online. So that's like the bigger benefit. Um, but, yeah, money's nice as well. And then actually, like, writing my business, I get, if you're interested in job offers, because I've grown a following, people bomb you with like, oh, please come and work for this company, that company, which is nice. But as a business owner, like, all of my work at the moment's inbound. It's like, all, I get customers come to me, like, not billions, but I get enough to keep me more than busy, right? I, so plenty of benefits, I would say. Yeah.
1: So- money learning plus you build a network and get lots of opportunities yeah i think so so let's finish with one advice if you just had one advice for someone to progress in their career what would it be just one advice um probably
0: really think about where you want to get to and then let people know like either through your writing or just speaking directly to someone, like mentoring is another form of communication, right? Just be explicit and clear about what you want to achieve and let let people help you. Like, if you don't tell anyone, they won't, or they, they won't know that they could. Like, people are really – it's such a good community. People are desperate to just be kind and help. So give them the opportunity to by just being open and honest and, and, and trying to help. And honestly – you'll go much faster.
1: Well, thanks so much, Adam. I had a lot of fun and learned a lot from you. So yeah, thanks a lot for joining the AI Stories podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Have a great evening and yeah, let's catch up soon.
0: Nice. Thank you very much. See ya.